This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Wa qala al-maliku inni ara sab'a baqaratin simani ya'kuluhunna sab'un ijaf وَسَبْعَ سُنْبُلَاتٍ خُضْرٍ وَأُخَرَ يَابِسَاتٍ يَا أَيُّهَا الْمَلَأُ أَفْتُونِي فِي رُؤْيَايَ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لِلرُؤْيَا تَعْبُرُونَ قَالُوا أَضْغَاثُ أَحْلَامٍ وَمَا نَحْنُ بِتَأْوِيلِ الْأَحْلَامِ بِعَالِمِينَ صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لسان يفقه قولي الحمد لله والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Once again everybody السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته So today after a little bit of a break uh, and some thinking that I had to do on my own and with the help of a few people uh, Dr. Akram Nadwi especially and also my dear Shahib Saeed I am ready to discuss some things from ayahs number 40 and 44 with you um, and that is now we have left the scene of prison, so the two inmates are out, uh, or one of them is out rather, one of them has been executed, and he's got his job, and Allah has already mentioned the devil made him forget to mention Yusuf salam, and all of that is done. And basically fast forward several years in the next ayah, and the king has seen the dream, and he's seen his dream enough times that it's bothering him, uh, to the point where he now makes mention of it to his courtiers. A couple of things to note about that before I translate the ayah, uh, because you know the 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 contents of the ayah are pretty straightforward. So actually, before I discuss the the side note, let me just translate the ayah for you, so all of you are on the same page, of, you know, as to what I'm talking about. al-Maliku, the king said, "Inni ara siman," that I see seven fat cows. ijaf, that you know, seven skinny ones, scrawny cows, are eating them. And then he says, وَسَبْعَ سُنْبُلَاتٍ خُضْرٍ And I saw seven stalks, meaning, you know, like when you have uh, ears of grain, like corn, and you peel it and there's grain inside or there's corn inside. It can be any kind of crop, but they're called sumbulat. I see seven stalks of grain that are green, and others that are dried up, meaning they're dead. So there's no food inside. يَا أَيُّهَا الْمَلَاءِ Meaning, my advisors, mala comes from the Arabic word, mal, the verb mala to fill. And the king usually has his closest advisors filling the inner courtroom, right? The Oval Office, if you will, or the conference center, the command center. Only, only the most VIP people can fill that room. So that's al-mala, right? So, uh, and the translation is generals, chiefs, commanders, advisors, etc. Aftuni fi ru'yaya. Give me a verdict. Tell me about this, uh, this dream of mine. Uh, give me the fatwa about it. And this is actually the same word that the prisoners used for Yusuf alayhi salam. Aftina. Could you tell us what it means? Give us your verdict on it. In kuntum ta'burun. If in fact you are those that interpret dreams. When it comes to dreams, you're the ones that interpret it. If that, that is the case, then help me out here. What this tells us is that ancient Egypt in this era was actually a pretty superstitious place. And they did have a lot of people that claimed to have knowledge of these mystical things, like what a dream could mean. And there were people in his court that, in fact, claimed such knowledge, sorcerers or priests or whatever they were. And so when he sees this dream, he knows that they make this claim. That's why at the end of this ayah, in kuntum If, in fact, you are the kind that can interpret such things, go ahead and do it for me. So he's actually putting a challenge to them when he's saying that. That tells us that that was kind of a dominant you know, a, a cultural thing. It also, we already get a, a hint of that in the prison when prisoners see a dream and they need somebody to interpret it. And there's no one there to interpret it for them and they come to Yusuf salam because it's kind of a common practice when you have a problem and you see a dream, you need to find somebody who can help you figure out what it is. It's kind of like nowadays when we have physical symptoms and we have, you know, whatever, we go to a pharmacy or we go to a doctor and somebody needs to prescribe something to us, figure out what's going on with us. Well, back in the day, this was almost like that. And this is the kind of society they were. And that's why they had come to Yusuf salam. So you can guess that by the end of this lecture, we'll have to deal with how Islam looks at dreams and what its significance are, the significance of dreams is and all of that. We'll, we'll get to that portion uh, when the time comes. 
But the first thing that I want to talk to you guys about is, uh, again, a, a very important, I think a significant side note. Uh, and that's about the Qur'an's use of Al-Malik. Uh, the king said, I translated this as the king said. And we know that the Egyptian kings, everywhere in the Qur'an, Allah calls them the pharaohs. Uh, Ali Fir'aun, the, the dynasty of the pharaoh, right? And with Musa alayhi it's constantly Fir'aun. And in the Bible, if, when we study Genesis, um, this same story you find that the king is being referred to sometimes as the king and other times as the pharaoh. So they're both terms are used for the king at the time of Musa salam is called Fir'aun, the pharaoh. And the king at the time of Joseph, of Yusuf salam is also called the pharaoh in the Bible. But in the Quran, there's a separation. The separation is, this king from Yusuf's time is never called Fir'aun. He's only called the king. And that king from Musa's time is never called the king, he's always called Fir'aun. So the Qur'an has made a very specific distinction between that Fir'aun, meaning that dynasty, and this dynasty. There seems to be a difference between them. Which is peculiar because at the time when the Qur'an was revealed, if you called him Fir'aun or you called him the king, it wouldn't make a difference, nobody would notice. Because the only people who knew this story were the Jewish people or the Christian people who had this in their scripture. And in their scripture, king and pharaoh are interchangeable, right? I already told you that in Genesis, they both, they're both used for the same king, right? So there's no difference made. But the Quran made it a point that every time this king comes up, even though he's a king of Egypt, never is the word pharaoh used for him. Only the word the king is used for him. So one of my dear students and colleagues... Um, uh, Sharif Rondawa who wrote the book along with me And actually did a lot of the heavy lifting For the writing of the book Divine Speech Who's one of his areas of expertise Is actually biblical traditions and Jewish studies And you know uh, scholarship Jewish scholarship and things like that He wrote about this some time ago And I you know, I posed the question to our Quran study group Because I wanted to go back Our Mufassirun have talked about this subject too But I wanted to look at it from a western academic point of view And he wrote about this uh, in back in 2015 and I think that his, uh, his piece on the Exodus in the Qur'an, the Bible uh, and history, he, one of the parts he wrote is the king versus the pharaoh, which is exactly what I'm talking about here. Why is the Qur'an calling him the king? So he wrote a little article on it, and I'm going to quickly read that off to you because I think it's important. And it's one of the things we'll appreciate about the Qur'an. So in English, pharaoh is used as a generic term for any king or queen of ancient Egypt without distinguishing between different periods or dynasties. This is how the term is used in the Bible as well. In the stories of Abraham and Joseph, which are almost universally located in the Middle Kingdom period, that is 2055 to 1650 BCE, the ruler of Egypt is called Pharaoh over 90 times. Likewise, in the story of Moses, which is almost universally located, located in the New Kingdom period, 1550 to 1069 BCE, uh, the Egyptian ruler is called Pharaoh 128 times. The term king of Egypt is also used in both the stories of Joseph, Yusuf in Exodus, and Moses. Therefore, in the Bible, the term Pharaoh and king of Egypt are both used for both periods, time periods without distinction. So the, either whether it's the new kingdom or it's the middle kingdom, you see Pharaoh or you see king of Egypt, both of them, right? The Quran is therefore peculiar in that it does not follow the biblical pattern. It uses both terms, Pharaoh and king, but without mixing between them. In the story of Joseph, the Qur'an consistently refers to the Egyptian ruler as Al-Malik, which we just read today the first time, Al-Malik, the king. yeah, And never as Fir'aun, Pharaoh. So, And that happens a couple of times in this surah in Ayah 43, which we're reading now, in 50, 54, 72, and 76. Over and over again. So there's five references here. Each time, never Fir'aun, always king. Further, on the other hand, in the various retellings of the story of Musa in the Qur'an, Moses in the Qur'an, the Egyptian ruler is consistently referred to as Fir'aun over 70 times, never as Al-Malik, never as the king, always as Fir'aun. So there is a clear distinction. What is surprising about the Qur'an's usage is that it accords precisely with the way the term Pharaoh was historically used in ancient Egyptian history. Now this is important, let's pause here for a second. He's no longer talking about biblical history or history as recorded by the Jewish and Christian tradition. He's talking about history as recorded by the ancient Egyptians themselves. Okay, so there's now a difference. Now, the term comes from the Egyptian par'a, meaning great house. So Fir'aun originally means great house. This is important now. Fir'aun originally was not a word for a person. It was a word for big house or great house. Okay, 
obviously the palace is what it refers to. Prior to the New Kingdom period, the term was used to refer to the royal palaces as a whole. So again, Fir'aun was not used for people, it was used for the palaces. And specifically the 18th dynasty, 16th to 14th centuries BCE, that the term came especially to designate for the Egyptian ruler. So in the New Kingdom, not the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom, the, the, the word Fir'aun started getting used not just for the royal palaces, but also for the kings themselves. They started getting, but before then, they were never called Fir'aun. Okay? As we saw in part 6, this is exactly the same the, uh, time the Exodus is dated. The Qur'an selectively, so the Qur'an selective usage of the term Pharaoh and king is therefore striking in its precision. The Qur'an could have, could employ any of the possibilities. Number one, could have used both terms for both time periods, just as the Bible does, uh, and even in modern English with any distinction. Number two, it could have exclusively used the term Pharaoh for both time periods. Uh, number three, it could have exclusively used the term king for both time periods. Number four, it could have used the term Pharaoh for the, for the period of Joseph and king for the period of Moses. Number five, instead of the Quran using the term king exclusively for the period of Joseph and the term Pharaoh exclusively, for and the Quran, number five is instead the Quran uses the term king exclusively for Joseph and Pharaoh exclusively for Moses. This is the last part. From the perspective of a seventh century Arab, Jew, or Christian, any of these possibilities would be acceptable. And there would be little to little to favor one over the other. The historical distinction between the two epithets has only come to light with the advent of modern Egyptology following the translation of hieroglyphics in the 19th century. So until the 1800s, we didn't know that there was actually a difference in the way the ancient Egyptians used to use the word Firaun. That the ones in the Middle Kingdom, which is the time of Yusuf, they didn't use it for kings. They used it for palaces. And in the time of Musa, they used it for people, for the kings themselves. We didn't know that we didn't have that knowledge. The Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition did not record that knowledge. That knowledge was preserved in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics that only got translated in the 19th century. And the Quran made a distinction between calling the king of, of Egypt at the time when the word Firaun was not relevant for them at that time, historically accurate term using the word king here for them. So that's actually one of the interesting in this facts, the Quran's usage is an impressive example of one of its most remarkable features. It's stunningly precise word choice. Okay, so that's that side note that I wanted to make about king uh, and its use in the Quran, that nothing, no small detail is arbitrary. And this goes back to a point that I can't say enough for myself and for any of you. The Quran is not only extremely precise so that it illustrates to us that it can only be the word of Allah, but its precision is there to let us know that nothing in the Quran is an extra detail that we can do without. Like it's just there because, just because. Let's just move along from it. Everything has a purpose. Even the use of saying the, mentioning him as the king, of course it helps us move along in the story, but it has other purposes, you know. So now let's get to this king and his incredible dream. Um, the first thing we note is the king openly says, siman." Uh, he announced in the court, so he's sitting up on the throne and he announced in the court and everybody, the mala are around. Apparently the servants are also around because the guy who, the cupbearer, right, is also around. And it can be argued that cupbearers are usually like the personal assistants. And in some accounts of ancient Egyptian history, in ancient history in general, these, these men that poured the drink for the king were also there to tell them interesting stories, them just make conversation, be company for them, etc. etc. It's kind of like the ancient bartender, personal bartender for them that just wants to make conversation with them. And that's because the kings are always dealing with heavy things and they're dealing with you know legislative matters or executive matters. And sometimes they have the opportunity to discuss or they, they have an opportunity to discuss something casually. Okay. So now Having said that, this the, the, the cupbearer is there in this conversation also. He, the king says, I see seven cows that are fat, that seven skinny ones are eating away. And then he sees that he says that I saw seven full stalks, meaning like you can think of crop, but seven tall stalks are standing there that can have corn or grain inside them and that are green and others that are dry. So it's a weird dream. First of all, the first part is extremely weird because he sees seven fat cows getting eaten by seven skinny cows, right? You guys hear that alarm? 
You guys want to go check what that is? We'll be back after this commercial message. Hold on. I'll, pu I'll put it on mute. You guys could stop for a little bit. It's distracting. Okay, come on. They're fixing a door. Everything's okay. Alhamdulillah. Okay. You know what it was? I'm giving you guys a lecture, and these boys are sitting here. My boys are sitting here, and they make these weird face because they hear the silent alarm, like a little beeping sound, and they're like, and I'm trying to concentrate on telling you about Surah Yusuf, and their faces are going like a squirrel. So I had to stop because my brain cells stopped functioning, and I had to. But I'm, we're all okay. Take a deep breath. Everything's fine. Alhamdulillah. We can go back to Quran study. Okay. So the king sees this weird dream of seven fat cows as they come, and the Bible says that as they come out of a lake, and behind them seven skinny cows come out. The Quran doesn't mention a lake, but seven skinny cows end up eating the seven fat cows, and. The entire court is listening. I mean, what sounds like something presidents nowadays would say, you know, the kind of presidents we have now. But, you, but like, it's not something you expect from the head of a nation to come out and say, man, I had this weird dream. What do you guys think about that? It was a cultural thing for them. They would, if, if a dream was recurring and it was bothering them, and that may be suggested by the ara uh, that I see. And in the ara, the, the language in the beginning might even suggest that this is something you keep seeing over and over again. And it's something that's bothering him enough that he brought it up in front of everybody. I'm trying to figure this out on my own, but I can't. So it's open floor. Anybody want to help me with this? I keep seeing, seeing these seven fat cows getting eaten by seven skinny ones. And I see these seven stalks and then, you know, seven dry ones. Ayuhal Mala, my chief, the general, give me, give me a verdict. Tell me what this means. In Gundum, if, if it's the case that for visions, you are the people that can interpret them. You're the ones that do that interpretation. Abara, interesting word. Abara nahar in ancient Arabic means to cross. When you go from one end of the river to the other end of the river, that's ubur. You crossed it over. Yeah. And when you hear a lesson or a story that moves you to tears and the tear moves out of the border of your eye and trickles down, it's actually called abara. Not Ibra, Ibra would be the lesson, but Abra is the, is the, uh, the, the you know, dropping of a tear. And Ibra min al-khayali al-haqiqa, from it we get the idea of interpretation where you take something abstract or something imaginary and you have it transfer over, like crossing the river, transfer over to reality. What does it really mean? Right, so that journey from concept, which could be weird, like this image that they saw, that the king saw, that, he, that was weird, from there to what it actually means is a journey, right? So get me across and tell me what it means. And that's why the word ta'burun or abara is used. So he says, if you people interpret these kinds of things, help me out here. Now, obviously we know, I'll get to that commentary at the very end. Uh, you know, the first part of my lecture today, I just want to help you connect the dots in the story. And then ask the larger question. And the larger question is, what do we learn from this? Because Allah's purpose is never just to tell us a story. Or tell us a part of the story to help move the story along. There's always a deeper purpose. So, okay, first we're going to understand how the story moves forward. But then we're going to take a step back and say, well, how does that help me right now as a believer who comes to the Qur'an seeking guidance, right? How does this part of the story where a king sees seven fat cows and seven skinny ones, and then he sees these stalks, you know, green and dry, and there's seven in number, how does that help me today? And some people can ask the obnoxious question, how is this relevant to my life? Well, let's explore that. And that's actually what I needed a couple of days doing. Seeing what this means and what, what has been said about it. And, you know, all of that is the easy part. But the larger question, if this is guidance and this is counsel for me, and I'm supposed to walk away with something timeless, and every believer should come to Allah's word and extract something timeless in every ayah, in every lesson. And especially when it comes to stories, Allah is so selective, right? He, he doesn't tell us all the details. He skips a lot. I mean... Look at it. He was just coming out of prison and now it's been several years and he sees this dream. How many years did Allah skip? 
How many conversations did Musa, Yusuf have in that time? How much happened in Egypt in that time? How much happened with Yaqub in that time? Lots of stuff happened, it's not there. So what he does decide to mention must be relevant for our guidance. Right? So we'll get to that question. But for now, what I want you to appreciate is he's asked this dream and you can, we know the story and we know that Yusuf knew what it meant because of revelation from Allah. What that means is there is no hard and fast scientific way to know exactly what a dream means. The only way you can absolutely know what a dream means is by revelation. Maybe you can get some pieces. Sometimes a dream is obvious. Man, I saw in my dream that I was eating too much pizza. Have you been eating too much pizza? Yeah. Well, I think I can figure out your dream. I think you're eating too much pizza. <laughs> and it's not that complicated. But sometimes you may see a dream, you can't figure out what it means, right? And this person sees a dream. Clearly, we know now, even though he doesn't believe his dream from Allah. Because his dream is going to be the reason why its interpretation is going to be the reason why all of Egypt is saved from starvation. So he's a disbeliever. He's a non-believer who has no knowledge of Allah or revelation or anything else. And yet Allah shows him a true dream. That's a curious reality, isn't it? Allah, basically, you can say, and dreams are a form of revelation from Allah Himself. They can be, true dreams can be directly sent by the angels from, from Allah through the angels to a, a person in their sleep. They can get true dreams. So true dreams are a concept, a, a spiritually true dream sent from Allah Himself is a reality and is not limited to a believer. Anybody can see it. Even a king can see it. You know, a king who has... And by the way, what did Allah say? What did Allah's Prophet, meaning Yusuf salam, say about this nation, all of them? He said, "Inni I left the religion of a nation who don't believe in Allah. And when it comes to the afterlife, they're in complete denial of it. But is he a believer or no? He's not. And yet still he sees a true dream, right? But the point that I'm trying to get at is nobody can actually tell him what it means. Even if they claim they know what it means, or they can figure out some parts of it. But by the way, speaking of dreams, it is possible nowadays that you're seeing a dream and you might go see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counselor, or somebody, and they might dig into your life and what's been going on and what anxieties have you been having and what past experiences have unearthed, maybe some trauma in your early life, and that same person resurfaced and now you're getting nightmares or you're getting some kind of recurring images. They may help you decipher the connection between what you saw in your dreams and what's been happening in your life. That's possible, right? But that means that those kinds of dreams are tied to your past or your present, isn't it? But this person's dream isn't tied to their past and it's not tied to their present. What is it tied to? Their future. And no one knows the future except Allah Azza wa right? So you have this, this strange dreams in the Quran, you'll notice dreams are... Like ominous readings of what's coming in the future Now there are other kinds of dreams you and I see That are very well connected to our past Even if you see a dream in the future About somebody yelling at you Or harming you in some way Maybe that's the person who harmed you before And you're having nightmares about them You understand? So it may not be news of something that's coming But a fear that you haven't let go of Some part of you is still holding on to it So there can be these psychological readings of the dream But the interesting thing is His, his chiefs This is their response When he told them this dream and he did say that you're the people that are able to interpret it. They look at each other and they basically respond to him, Meaning if you take sticks, pebbles, dried up leaves, different kinds of twigs, and you mash them together and put them in a sack, and you can't find one item, it's all a mishmash of different kinds of things, that's actually called daghth, abghath. They say jumbled up compilations of the, of dreams that you've had. And this ilafa, what, what it's suggesting is cows, skinny cows, fat cows, eating each other, cow, cannibal cows? What, what is this? The cows that like like burgers? We don't get it. This is this is just it doesn't make any sense. There's no, you know, in Urdu they say nasarna pair. You know, there's no there's no heads or tails to this thing. There's no it doesn't make any sense. It's up, upside, it's topsy-turvy, it's, it, it's complete nonsense. And then they say that when it comes to interpreting senseless dreams or dreams that you have that are convoluted images, we're not the ones who know that kind of thing. 
In other words, they could just say we don't know. Right? When you when somebody tells asks you to give you an answer, you say I don't know. But these guys Allah recorded their response as something more complex than we simply don't know. You you can gather easily at the surface reading that they dismissed the king's dream and they said we don't know. Fine. But the thing is sometimes you have people in very important positions and the only reason they're in that position is they're able to answer questions. That's your job. Your job is I present your problem, give me a solution. Well, if I keep telling you I don't know the answer, what's going to happen to my job? I come to you with a question. I don't know. I come to you with another question. I, I don't know. I can't do that because then why am I keeping you on payroll? I think you need to go find a job where you do know. Right? Because you're, you're no good at this. So you're out of here. These guys need to keep their job. Job security is important. You know, where are they going to go? So you know what they do? They say, well, if I don't know the answer, maybe... I can make my question or feel like the answer, the question itself is ridiculous. That way, I don't have to feel like I need to answer to prove my qualifications because the question itself is ridiculous. You understand? So you, the best defense is what? Offense. So you, you, you turn the tables and that way your own incompetence, you can't just come out and admit, I'm, maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't, but I don't know. I, 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 I honestly don't know. For some people, saying I don't know is hard. I'm not qualified is really hard. And when they get put in a corner enough where they have to admit they're not qualified, they turn around and say, actually, what you asked of me is irrelevant. <laughs> so the, the, the project itself is fault, faulty, not my inability to do it. You understand what I'm saying? So this is a very political maneuver, and it's no surprise that these are politicians that take this course. And in it, Allah is teaching us perhaps embedded inside of it, a kind of response certain people have. They didn't just say, we don't know what it means. They said, ahlam can actually mean, you know, uh, dreams with provocative images in them. Dreams that are nightmares can be called ahlam. Actually, literally the word dream. There are two words for dream in Arabic, ru'ya uh, and hulm. And hulm, can be used for any dream and it can be used for nightmares and provocative dreams. Ru'ya, however, is a shared word between dreams and also vision or seeing. If I see something, that's also ru'ya. And a, seeing a dream is also ru'ya. One of the ways that the Quran has done something interesting that doesn't happen in Arabic. In Arabic, if you say, if you use ahlam or you use ru'ya, both of them mean dream. Like for an Arab, even in ancient times, they wouldn't make a separation between ahlam and ru'ya. But the Qur'an makes a distinction. For, uh, ahlam is never used for dreams of prophets, true dreams. And ru'ya is always used for true dreams. And that's interesting because ru'ya is also related to actually seeing. So the word that's closer to reality is the, word, the one that's used in the Qur'an for actual precise dreams. Or dreams that have a real interpretation behind them. But this dream, they look at it and they respond immediately, we can't help you with that they, there's we don't know anything about these senseless dreams we can't interpret dreams that are just a mix mishmash of different things i don't know what you ate last king the biryani had too much masala in it and that's why you just had nightmares and they want to dismiss the question itself now this this part of the story i know i'm not discussing any further what happens next because that's a that's a story by itself what i want to take the rest of my time discussing with you is what I thought about It came to these two ayat What should I as a believer Before I give you a talk about it Or share thoughts with you What should I as a believer Take away from these two ayat For myself And I posed that question early on Yeah. So here's a few things That came to my mind Allahu Ta'ala um, The first of them Is that human beings Can never Ever calculate Or foresee Or make projections About Allah's plans that's not possible for us. How does Allah plan to save Egypt from a famine that is coming seven years later? He plans to save them by showing their king a dream, which he will mention in public, which will happen to be heard by the cupbearer, which will then happen to know or remember, ding, there's someone I know who knows dreams, and so on and so forth. And that's Allah's plan for saving hundreds of thousands of people first from starvation from a dream. There's no way a human being can... We can make... You know, countries make economic projections, right? 
people make career projections. This is what I plan to do. This is the degree I plan to get. This is how much I plan to save. People make plans for saving a house or building a nation, or we have projections and plans. For example, different countries have different approaches to deal with the COVID-19 crisis right now. And they have projections and plans for how to roll out or how to, you know, uh, you know, uh, reopen society and all of that stuff. And no matter what projections and plans we make, Sometimes our projections and our plans are in line with the plan Allah has also. Other times Allah has his own plan. And Allah's plan is so unpredictable. And there's no way you could logically imagine that that would be a plan that human beings could ever even come close to. There's no way a human could say, yeah, you know what? If we really want Egypt to be saved, I think we should make sure the king gets plenty of sleep. But sooner or later, he might see a dream. That can't be part of human calculation. So the first thing that we should take away from this is that Allah's plans cannot be known to us. They cannot be known to us. We can only think about our own plans. And you know what? This is important because sometimes we have our own plans and we are so set on our expectations for our plans coming through. Right? Before COVID-19 happened, we, me and a bunch of the kids here, we were planning a trip to New York, a road trip to New York. Of all places, New York, the epicenter of the virus. Can you imagine? And Allah had his own plan, right? And some kids were like, oh, we're going to go on a trip. But look at how Allah plans. We can make our little plans and projections and budgets. And this is the kind of van we can get. These are the stops we'll make. These are the masjids we'll pray at, etc., etc. Allah has his own plan. And we can't see how Allah's plan makes any sense to us. And that's actually the point. Allah's plan at face value, a guy seeing fat cows and skinny cows makes no sense. Does it? It makes no logical sense. And actually at one level, his advisor saying, that's just a crazy weird dream you saw, boss. Can't help you there. That's actually logical too. At one level, it's understandable because it, it sounds crazy. But this, what, what seems crazy to you and me is often a very elaborate, precise part of Allah's plan that you and I couldn't even begin to understand what the pieces of this puzzle are. You see, so for us, think of for us, our plans are on one chessboard. And Allah owns way beyond this board, way beyond this board that we can see are pieces of the puzzle that Allah controls that when He makes His plans. That's the first takeaway. And that gives us a relief in the just because I don't see Allah's plan acting out doesn't mean there isn't a plan. I don't see it turning turning out the way I expect it to. Doesn't mean nothing's happening. Something's always happening. And something doesn't have to be happening where you can see it. Yusuf is in prison. Yaqub is at home crying. And a king is talking to a bunch of advisors about fat cows. But it's all related. And this is not an Islamic halaqa, guys. They, this guy is just talking about cows eating cows. You know, beef on beef crime. That's what, that's what it's talk, he's talking about. And it, at one level, you wouldn't think it has any significance at all. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway to me is remarkable. Think about Yusuf السلام, and what his long shot was with the cupbearer. He was hoping that the cupbearer will go and somehow remind the king, right? Make mention, and somehow it will come into the consciousness of the king. And Allah's plan was exactly the opposite. Allah's plan was the king will express his dream, which will end up reminding the cupbearer. So it's not the cupbearer who reminded the king. It was the king who reminded the cupbearer of Yusuf alayhi salam. To me, that's incredible. It's actually in a way how Allah honored Yusuf alayhi salam that you don't need a servant to mention you to some king. I will put the king's sleep to your, to your service. He put the king, and he, the king can't even control his dream. He's bothered by it. And he brings it up. It's as if Allah used the king of Egypt to the service of Yusuf alayhi salam and flipped that script. Sometimes we ask for something and you would think that, you know, uh, Allah, this is important to mention as part of this reversal, right? That I'm talking about this reversal. It's not the cupbearer who reminded, it's the king who reminded. 
Allah was very strategic in reminding us that when the when the cupbearer left, what did Allah say? The devil made him forget. Remember? The devil made him forget. The devil isn't just your enemy because he whispers to you. The devil is also your enemy because he wants to harm you from other people too. And if other people were going to do some good towards you, then he'll go and make them forget. And if other people didn't mean harm towards you, he'll keep inciting them until they're motivated to do harm towards you. The devil isn't just your enemy because he wants you to do wrong. If he can't get you to do wrong, he'll try to turn everybody around you, anybody who has a touch with you, to do some harm to you in some way or to block path of the pathways to any good towards you. You understand? So the devil played his game. He said, man, Yusuf ain't getting out until the word gets out. So the devil's mind, if I can just distract the cupbearer, Yusuf's going to rot in jail, right? But the, what we're learning is the devil has his plan. And he plays his card. And he successfully played his card because the cupbearer forgot, right? But Allah's plan is much bigger than the devil can ever come up with because Allah wanted that this reminder shouldn't come from the cupbearer. It should come from the king. And it should come at the hour of the king's need. And now, Hazrat, it's not just that Yusuf is release from prison is delayed, but it's going to come at a time where he will be put in a position to do more good than he ever could have done if he came out, came out the same week, if he came out the same day, if the cupbearer remembered and the king somehow pardoned him or whatever. If all of that happened, we wouldn't find Yusuf being the minister of the land, of the finances of all of Egypt and in charge and bringing, up, bringing back all of his family together, the Israelites, who will then have offsprings among whom is going to be Musa السلام, who is going to be the most mentioned prophet in the Quran. Uh, none of that would happen and none of that legacy of good would take place if Yusuf السلام, did not wait until the king Allah decides would see the dream. In other words, the devil has his plan. Allah has his plan. And sometimes you can see the devil's plan. But you cannot see Allah's plan. And because you see the devil's plan, you say, where's Allah's plan? The devil, look at, look at what the devil did here. Look at what the devil made these people do here. Look at what the devil made these people do here. They're doing so much. They're following the devil and they're doing so much evil. Where's Allah's response? Hold on. Maybe it's not time yet. And maybe Allah's response is such a sweeping response. It takes all of the efforts and the schemings of the devil and washes them away like froth. It comes like a giant wave and just washes, washes it all away. And we get overwhelmed by those petty schemes of the devil. Allah says the, the scheme of the devil has always been weak. And we need to understand that from this story. Then, prophetic, the, the, this, this is the third takeaway that I think we should, we should think about when it comes to this portion of the story, him telling the dream. That we think of religious knowledge, we think of knowledge that came from prophets, as something that benefits you spiritually. Pray, give sadaqah, you know, be honest, be kind. Allah will reward you when? In the next life, right? When we think of following the religion or being closer to Allah, we're not thinking of a promotion at work. We're not thinking of healthier, you know, more being more fit or having better finances or whatever. We're thinking about, you know, you'll have more peace of heart. You're going to have calm. You're going to have barakah in your risk, etc., etc. You, you, spiritual benefits, right? People associate following Allah's plan or Allah's commandments with spiritual benefit. The thing is, Allah's guidance is for human benefit. And human benefit includes spiritual benefit. It includes emotional benefit. It includes psychological benefit. It includes financial benefit. It includes health benefit. It includes political benefit, social benefit, economic benefit. You name it. Human benefit is incorporated inside Allah's teachings. Where am I getting this from? These people have a problem that's coming. Right? The problem that's coming is a famine that will starve the nation to death. No one has the answer to save this nation from famine except for knowledge given to a prophet. Yes or no? And the knowledge that is given to a prophet is going to save this nation from an economic crisis. And you know when there's an economic crisis, a political crisis is right behind it. And when there's a political crisis, social unrest comes with it. 
And when social unrest comes with it, comes great turmoil for individuals and families in that society. Crimes increase. And when crimes increase and starvation increases, infighting increases. Families get broken. Emotional distress, psychological distress, health distress, economic distress, political distress, social distress. Everything starts falling apart because it's all domino effects. It's all related, isn't it? And the only one who could keep this entire, the collapse of society and therefore the collapse of family, for the collapse of the individual, the collapse of government, all of that collapse that was coming the way of Egypt, the only thing that put a stop to that is knowledge that was given to a prophet. What do we learn here about knowledge given to prophets? Prophetic knowledge isn't just there to help you spiritually. It's not just there to help me be more, be closer to Allah in the Akhirah. And that is its ultimate goal. Allah says about the people before us, the people of Torah and Injil, He says, Listen to this ayah. He said, if they only established, meaning lived by the Torah and the Injil, if they actually lived by it, they would have eaten from above their heads and from beneath their feet. In other words, they would have lived it up. They would have had a good life if they lived by Allah's word. If they lived by... So in other words, he's not just talking about spiritual benefit, he's talking about very worldly benefit. You know that famous dua? رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَا وَقِنَا عَذَابَ النَّارِ Give us the best of this life and the best of the next life. Give us good in this life and give, give us good in the next life. The purpose of revelation is not just to secure your next life and harm you in this life. Actually, the purpose of revelation equally is to take harm away from you also in this life. And only revelation can do that. In ways nothing, no other projections, no other plans can. And the problem is, the problem is, it takes faith to believe revelation has it right. Because scientifically, if you had a psychologist from today, three PhDs, back in the time of Yusuf and this man Joseph is saying, there's going to be seven good years followed by seven bad years, what's he going to say? This is some form of dementia. This is uh, perhaps this man has been severely traumatized and feels that they get news from the unseen, etc., etc. They would dismiss revelation as something that doesn't make any sense. First of all, before even the interpretation, he would dismiss the king's dream, isn't it? That's, that's what would happen if a modern secular mind was at the time one of the advisors to the king. He'd say, no, this, there's no such thing as interpretation of this stuff. And even if somebody offered the interpretation, they'd say, this is crazy, we, we can't follow this. Why not? Because it claims to be revelation. Revelation is absurd. We should follow projections. We should follow science. We should follow data. That's going to lead to a better life. Yes, it will. But when it is in line with revelation, and that's actually one of the goals of revelation, is to, and what, what Yusuf asked them to do is such profound advice when we get to that, that it actually combines deen and dunya together. It combines them together. And that's I, I don't yet another takeaway from these two on that. Now, it's also important to note that peop, the, you know, think of the ministers that were in the court of the king. These are people that moved up in the ranks or from high elite families. These are people that are the highest educated in that society. These are the you know, in a sense, they are the most influential people, right? And these are the brightest minds of the time. That's why they made it to the position that they are. You don't get by being dumb. You have to be something to get to that position, right? Now that they're in that position, they hear something and they place no value on it, right? And then that same statement is heard by the Prophet Yusuf and he places profound value on it. They called it a jumbled up set of images that are, a, it's a convoluted dream, really a nightmare. Don't think about it. And on the flip side, Yusuf sees the future of an entire nation from the same exact statement, isn't it? I think universal that can be drawn for, this, for you and I is that sometimes in the world, in the secular world, in the, in the outside of the Quran's worldview world, there are things that have no value. Things that are trivial, insignificant, they are not a big deal at all. And from the point of view of revelation, they may be extremely significant. In other words, people that see things from the lens of revelation will place value on things that people that don't see it from the lens of revelation will not see any, any value to the same things. 
the way we place value on something is this decides how much we how much time we spend on it how much attention it gets from us what kind of time commitment effort focus attention all of it is decided by what is the value of something right so people value their job so they'll get up early and go to work right you value exercise you value eating well you value your prayers etc cetera, etc cetera. when you value something you'll put time effort energy behind it what i'm saying is the lens of revelation the lens of allah's word makes you put value on different things but if you don't have that lens you may see the same thing and see absolutely no value isn't that the only difference between how yusuf sees this and how they see it he has revelation from allah he has revelation from allah so he can see something they can't see isn't it dhalika mabdahu min al ilm that is the extent of their knowledge that all they know is this world he didn't want anything but worldly life. That's the extent of what they know, extent of knowledge. For us, before we place a value or consider something significant or insignificant, we have to learn to look at it under the proper light. And that's a really good analogy. I like that analogy a lot, the analogy of light. If you, look, if you turn a red light on, whatever's around you will look red. You turn a green light on, everything will be tinted. Green. Turn a blue light on, everything will be tinted blue. In other words, the light with which you look at something has an effect on how it looks. Yes or no? The Quran is, itself is called light. Isn't it? When you look at something from Quran, you look at something from Quran's lens, then it looks different than when you don't look at it from the Quran's lens. It's a different kind of light. It highlights something else. In certain textures of light, you won't see something. In other textures of light, you'll see it. Like, oh, whoa, that's what it looks like? It's a completely different kind of view. So that's another yet another takeaway from here. Uh, I actually wrote this separately, but um, I, I should mention it again, the shaitan thing, because it's just that important. I, I'll just highlight it briefly. Shaitan doesn't just want to harm you by coming at you. If he fails, at com- fails to come at you, or you figured out a way to defend yourself against the devil, what's his next move? He's going to try to come at you from people. Around you, and he's going to try to do one of two things: either turn people, convince people to do harm to you, or people that were about to do good to you, convince them to turn the other way. And in his mind, he's thinking by doing so, he is going to change your fate. That bad will happen to you that otherwise would not have happened, and he succeeded somehow. But his plan is weak. Like I said, Allah has His own plan that sub- subverts His plan. Right? Forget Yusuf alayhi wondering. I wonder if that servant mentioned me. Allah basically, without telling him, told him, forget the servant mentioning you, the king is going to mention you. Don't you worry. I, I'll go, you, you don't need a servant to get to the king. I'll go directly to the king. I'll put it, put it in his dream that he'll be in need of you. He flipped it so beautifully, right? And this is the final takeaway from these two ayat. You see, the most, it seems, one of the most profound or our value given areas of knowledge in ancient Egypt was dream interpretation. It seems like it was a big deal, right? Uh, we can tell that from the, the inmates in prison and now even up to the king, that dreams are important. And figuring out what a dream means, they must have an entire industry behind it or whatever. They have these soothsayers and you know mystics or whatever that figure out dreams. What Allah did in the case of Yusuf salam is he gave him a knowledge that was already looked up to in his time. Even the king is looking for someone to interpret his dream, right? He's not looking for a prophet. He's looking for a dream interpreter. He's not looking for someone to give him da'wah to Allah. He's looking for a problem that he has to be solved. And in that culture, in that society, one of the highest kinds of problems you can solve is you can interpret somebody's dream, right? And interpreting somebody's dream doesn't mean that you brought them to Islam. It just means you help them with the problem that they had, right? What we learn about Yusuf, uh, Yusuf, Yusuf is that Allah says, وَكَذَلِكَ نَجْزِلْ مُحْسِنِينَ That Allah, he, he was from among the muhsinin, those who excel. And one of his areas of excellence, in fact, is interpretation, isn't it? If one, this is the takeaway now, if Allah gives one of his slaves, men or women, something that they are excellent at, something that they are excellent at, and they apply themselves and being excellent at that to help people in any way that they can. 
Did Yusuf help people and need the opportunity he got? He did. When two men came to him asking, he helped them. Right? The, the, the owner of the house has kept him. He's been good to him. He's going to stay loyal to him. He's not going to cross that line. He's going to stay from the muhsini no matter what situation he finds himself in. Because he does his best to do good by whatever talents Allah has given him. By doing good by whatever talents Allah has given him. Allah Himself opens the doors for you to put your talent to work. If you're going to do good, and you're going to do your very best with the gifts Allah gave you, then you don't have to go knocking on doors. Allah will open the doors and the ones who want your services and need your services will come knocking on your door. He will bring them to you, even if you're in prison and they're on the throne. You see, people that are in jail, even when they get out of jail, can't get a job. Right? Here you have Yusuf in jail, and the one looking to hire him is going to be the king of the land. And he's going to come and say, no, no, come out of jail, and also work exclusively for me. Why? Because he's from the muhsini. He's from those who excel. Another important takeaway here that's, that's really powerful is Allah made him good at interpretation, right? Allah taught him interpretation. And when he helped those two young men interpret their dream, you know what he said? He said, This is from what my master taught me. I'm good at, Allah made me good at this, so I can help you with this. Isn't that what he said? When you are in a society, when you are around people, and you're good at something, first of all, acknowledge that Allah made you good at it. Second of all, there's no shame in acknowledging that you're good at something. That you've been taught something. That you've been given a talent. Let your talent be known. If he didn't let his talent be known, the story wouldn't have moved forward. Would it? No, no, how can I interpret a dream? Astaghfirullah, I am nothing. I'm just a humble slave. I, Inshallah, you find someone more knowledgeable. No, he said, this is what Allah taught me. I can help you out. Before lunch gets here, I'll help you out. This is Allah, Allah has given me the special knowledge. Sometimes Allah has given you an ability, a talent, something that other people don't believe in you, but you know yourself you have it. Allah has given it to you. Don't be in denial of that talent. Declare it. Do good with it. And when you do good with it, you won't have to look for opportunity. Allah will make opportunity come looking for you. That's the lesson here. In a completely different world that Yusuf had no access to, the king himself, his own mind, is where Allah opened the door for Yusuf And look all around him. There are plenty of people who could answer that question, but all of them are just, we can't help you. This is ridiculous. This has no value whatsoever. Because Allah's plan was, when you do good, then Allah will demonstrate but by your faith that there are those who don't believe who can't even come close to the good that you're doing. And even those who don't believe will come to you. They'll come to you because you're from the Muhsineen. May Allah Azza make us from the Muhsineen and overlook our past mistakes. Barakallahu alaykum fil al-hakim wa na'ani wa iyaakum bil-ayati wa dhikr al-hakim. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.